Hello everyone, thank you so much for coming to our book launch today of Courts and Conflict, Interpreting the Layers of Justice in Post-Genocide Rwanda. And our speaker and the author of the book is Dr. Nicola Palmer. And Nicola is a lecturer in criminal law at Dixon Poon School of Law, King's College London, and an also research associate here at the Center for Criminology, University of Oxford. And Nikki is also, she serves on the advisory board of our research network. You can see it on the banner, Oxford Transitional Justice Research. So that's why we are particularly excited and honored that we can uh, launch Nikki's book today because she was really, uh, she played a really key role in making the group what it is today, founding and developing it. So we are very grateful to have her here. And uh, Nikki also did her PhD here in law at the University of Oxford, and she finished in 2011, and she studied here as a Rhodes Scholar. And prior to starting her doctoral studies, Nikki also uh, worked as a legal assistant at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and she did her undergraduate degree in law and economics. I didn't realize that, actually. I'm going to keep it hidden. <laughs> it's a new, new kind of expertise here <laughs> uh, at Rhodes University um, in South Africa. And her broad research interests are in transitional justice, international criminal law, Central African studies, and legal anthropology. And our discussion today is Professor Johnny Steinberg, and we're also very grateful for Johnny to, to come here and offer his comments on Nikki's book. And uh, Johnny is a professor of African criminology here at the University of Oxford, and his work explores South African people and institutions in the wake of transition to democracy. And uh, the, the institutions he has written about are the prison, the farm, the police, and the clinic. And his latest book, uh, which is called A Man of Good Hope, was published in January 2015. So she, we should have another book launch soon. <laughs> um, so please now well, um, join me all now in welcoming Nikki and Johnny to our book launch today. Excellent. Thank you very much, Leila, and thank you to Oxford Transitional Justice for the invitation to be here. It's wonderful to be back in Oxford. Uh, and also, thank you very much to Johnny for, for agreeing to, to read the book and, and to offer some comments today. So um, It's excellent to be here. I also appreciate all of you coming out. I know it's a busy time of year, so, so thanks for making the time. All right, so last week, the Appeals Chamber for the International Criminal Court made a decision and con to confirm that the case against Simone Bagbo was admissible at the international level. And this decision was reached despite the former First Lady of Cote d'Ivoire having received a 20-year sentence um, by an Ivorian domestic court for having been found um, guilty of involvement in disturbing the peace, forming and or organizing armed gangs, and undermining state security. Now, the legal basis for this decision by the International Criminal Court focuses on their current approach to complementarity and its reading of what constitutes a case under Article 17. Now, for a case to be inadmissible at the international level, the domestic proceedings need not be tried as international crimes, um, but the domestic proceedings must, con um, must concern the same person and substantially the same conduct. 
and it's only once the case concerns the same person and substantially the same conduct that the court would then go into a discussion of whether the state is then willing and able to undertake this particular case genuinely. Now this interpretation of the ICC statute is in line with a wider move in the practice of transitional justice towards holistic responses to political violence. Practitioners and scholars alike at the moment are arguing for undertaking domestic processes such as truth commissions or localized forms of, of traditional justice or domestic criminal trials to complement international proceedings. Now, rather than deferring to domestic courts, the ICC's legal doctrine clearly establishes and now has a preference for proceedings to occur at the international level and the domestic level. So it's really becoming the policy norm um, and supported by the legal decisions for us to have international trials operating concurrently with domestic processes, often with overlapping factual scenarios, and sometimes, as is the case with Simone Bagbo, with overlapping accused. But there's remarkably limited research on the interactions between these domestic systems of, just, of justice set up in response to political violence and international responses. And so today, what I, what I want to suggest for the next 10 to 15 minutes is that if this holism is to continue, if we're going to continue to have this practice of, of domestic and international processes operating concurrently or in sequence with one another, then it is absolutely crucial that we take seriously the possibility that domestic transitional justice processes um, might, articu might articulate very different sets of justifications for their work than those that are articulated at the international level. And that this will shape how the institutions interact with one another, both through formal information sharing around cooperation or evidence gathering and through the, their formal legal decisions. Now, the focus of the book um, is on Rwanda. And Rwanda, in many respects, provides an early example of multiple courts operating in concert. Through the concurrent practice of the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the Rwandan National Courts, and the Kachacha Community Courts. And what I argue in the book is that an interpretive cultural analysis allows us to examine how the courts have interacted with each other and shows that although the courts are legally compatible insofar as they don't exercise any jurisdictional challenge to one another, in practice they have often pulled in different directions and have been in conflict. So what I'm going to do to illustrate these conflicts is to focus on two specific interactions. The first, I'm going to look at the use of the localized Pichacha courts records in the judgments that have been handed down by the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Now, I know that many, in the room, many of you in the room are familiar with this, but for those of you who aren't, 
The Gachacha courts were a state-implemented form of transitional justice that drew on traditional forms of Rwandan dispute resolution, but were legislated at the national level and, were, and played out across the country with over 10,000 courts. So first I'm going to examine how their documents were used in the decisions of the international courts. We start to see these interactions between the international and the national systems. And then second, I'm going to unpack the interactions between the Rwandan national prosecutors and the Gachacha courts, as we've seen this play out in a recent extradition application in the High Court here in the UK. And what I want to do is I'm going to show that these interactions should be understood as sites of conflict, and that crucially, such conflicts can be better understood if examined in light of the different meanings that have been ascribed to these plural responses to genocidal violence. So the work draws on 182 interviews that I conducted inside of the ICTR, the Rwandan National Courts, and two Gachacha Courts, one in the north and one in the east of the country. Um, and I was particularly interested in interviewing the judges and lawyers um, and, then a and some government officials, and then a group of Rwandans who had been subject to the authority of one or more of these judicial institutions. And I adopted, or I adopt in the book, an explicitly interpretive approach to this work. Through interviews coupled with discussions and participant observation of the court's hearings, I aimed to unravel what Gertz would term the socially established structures of meaning that render the legal practice of these courts intelligible, providing a description then of how transitional justice has been produced, perceived, and interpreted by those, in, the, by those enacting it and those subject to it. So given the empirical orientation of this work, I think it's necessary to offer just a, a brief comment on the method and the process. Conducting effective empirical work in Rwanda is a delicate process. Rwanda is a divided post-conflict society, and the scholarship on it is equally polarized. On the one hand, the post-genocide state is framed as a model of African development, and its leadership as transformative. In this reading, most prominent in the economic literature on the country, the research focuses on Rwanda's rapid economic growth, um, its improvements in public health, and, and improvements in information and, and communication technology. And whether orientated towards policy or academia, this research is generally framed by a deference to the actions of the state, particularly following the tragedy of the 1994 genocide. On the other, and increasingly dominant side, the Rwandan state is understood as authoritarian. Dictated by the elite of the ruling party, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the state's policy is understood to repress the rural majority. Following from this, researchers have argued that empirical work in the country is severely constrained and interfered with, and that the, general, and that the gener generation of knowledge there is actively constructed around dominant narratives put forward by the Rwandan state. So for authors such as Lars Waldorf and Bert Engelaer, the post-genocide courts reinforce the status quo 
through establishing the government's top-down narrative of what occurred in 1994, and at the local level through exacerbating local political divisions and ethnic tensions. Now, aware of this literature going into this project, which I began in, in 2007, I was nonetheless conscious that if we start with these strong assumptions that the central point of analysis in Rwanda is the Hutu-Tutsi bipolarity, that Rwandans are generally private or silent, um, and that they're oppressed by a strong state. I think there's a risk, particularly when you're doing empirical work, of reading this into your data analysis. So you, you've already decided what it is that you're going to interpret when you start these interviews to try to understand how Rwandans themselves, who have participated in these courts, are making sense of this practice. But at the same time, it's very necessary to be aware of the political context in which the participants interpret the court's actions and in which these courts operate. And I think one clear point that came out to me in the empirical work was an awareness of where you're conducting the interview and how where you're conducting the interview shapes the type of information that people are able to provide you with or interested in providing you with. So during my stay in a, in a town in northern Rwanda, I would spend my mornings practicing Kenya Rwanda with, with the women in the marketplace. And I spoke to the women about their language um, and about their work. And one of the, le the language lessons on words for memory and history was given particular emphasis. Valerie, my teacher, was a very well-established trader in the market, and she explained to me, Kwibuka is to remember. Ndibuka amateka yanje means I remember my story. This is history, amateka. The woman around us emphasized the importance of these words. But then when I tried to further explore these themes, they were reluctant to continue. The marketplace was not the place for the discussion of the war and the, and the genocide. And even when I was with Valerie, sitting with Valerie alone behind the stall, her and I spoke of other things. In contrast, once attending the Gachacha hearings in the same community, sitting next to the woman who I'd seen in the market the day before, in a public space, there was a real willingness to express opinions, critical and supportive, of how people were understanding the justice process and in between deliberations or when there was a delay waiting for a witness, that became a crucial point of research access when I could start to talk to individuals who had been subject to the authority of these courts about how they were making sense of the everyday practices of them. However, not all spaces were as conducive to effective work. And I spent quite a lot of time in the Rwandan prisons um, talking to individuals who had been witnesses before the ICTR and the national courts and some of whom had then been subject to trial before the Gachacha courts. And one of the interviews that I'd requested was for a high-profile suspect whose trial had been following in Kigali for three weeks prior to this. And she, when I requested the interview, she asked, could we have this interview in um, the prison warden's office? And the prison warden was actually present for the first half of that interview. And she had seen my invitation to ask for this interview as an opportunity to, it, to indicate to the prison authorities how much she supported their 
their policies and their current position on post-genocide justice. And so I think there needs to be a consciousness of how place shapes the type of information that you're getting. But at the same time, an awareness that what I was particularly interested in was not whether people were giving me the only version they had of how they were making sense of these justice processes, but, whether, but more how they were starting to express their understanding of these courts to me, an outsider, in a variety of different settings. So I could start to understand how they were projecting their understanding of what these justice processes were about and how this then might allow us to better explain the legal and the, the informal interactions that have occurred between the international, national and localised courts. So let me touch briefly on what the, um, what the findings were that came out of this empirical work. So among the international judges and lawyers that I interviewed, um, the ICTR was principally understood to have been concerned with the development of international criminal case law. While inside Rwanda, the national courts purported to have focused most of their attention on <coughs> internal judicial reform. While the personnel that I, in, that I interviewed inside of the Chacha saw their central contribution as having been towards obtaining a better local understanding of the conflict. Now, it's arguable that the three courts could still have a complementary impact on justice. With the ICTR contributing to a global legal order, the national courts to the development of judicial capacity, and Kachacha to providing a local mechanism of truth-telling and accountability. But this was what was key. The empirical work showed that how one process was justified inside of the institution affected how the other processes were viewed and understood. How the courts understood their own work elucidates aspects of the institution's legal culture and it's within this specific legal culture that the, the work of the other courts is assessed and this has impacted the legal practice of all three institutions. So let's look at these two instances of legal practice and how an understanding of what the judges and lawyers thought they were trying to achieve helps us explain the interactions and the conflicts between these sites of post-genocide justice. So, consistent with an emphasis on international criminal case law, participants inside the ICTR generally saw the activities of the courts um, the activity of, of the ICTR as a means of establishing an international system of justice. And the actions of all three of the courts were interpreted in this common cultural context. With regard to the, um, with regard to the Rwanda national courts, there was general skepticism of the national courts to be able to um, contribute to this development of international criminal case law. As one judge argued, you must remember that the tribunal is not just about Rwanda, it's about the world. The Rwandan judiciary did not in any way stand up to the standards of international justice. The perspectives on Gachacha painted a similarly interesting an important picture of how these separate courts have operated. Most participants inside the ICTR initially emphasized the distinct nature of 
the ICTR and Gachacha. As one senior trial attorney said, it's not our, we've adopted a hands-off approach to Gachacha. It's not our job to criticize it. For those who did engage, there were a number of scathing critiques. As a, another trial attorney said, it's a failed process. Gachacha has undermined the integrity of international justice. The attempts to further domestic criminal justice have undermined international justice. How was the evidence assessed? It's not clearly documented. In fact, I feel that it's undermined the system of accountability. Yet, despite the ICTR judges and, law and lawyers' interests in trying to distance the work of the Chacha from that of the work that they were doing at the ICTR, there's actually been extensive reference to the local courts in the decisions handed down by the international one. Of the 74 cases tried by the ICTR, 54 have made reference to evidence gathered before the Gachacha courts. More strikingly, since the nationwide implementation of Gachacha in 2004, the ICTR has judged 49 individuals. 47 out of these 49 cases have used and made reference to the Gachacha courts. So as much as the ICTR judges and lawyers might have liked to look at these as distinct processes where you could adopt a hands-off approach, the practical reality has been that there has been extensive interaction because of the factual overlap um, and because in many cases they're dealing with the same witnesses and they're looking at the same sets of crimes. Now, an analysis of these judgments shows that the ICTR's use of the documents has often been piecemeal and misdirected. However, where the Chamber has been able to have a more grounded and informed view of the local courts, they've been able to make better use of the evidence. So the most common use of the Gachacha judgments and the witness statements is for defence counsel to argue that their clients have not been mentioned in the Rwandan case, in the Rwandan domestic proceedings that are dealing with the same crimes that, that, con that, have been, that their particular client has been indicted for at the international level. Now if we think about the ICC and the fact that we're now almost certainly going to have overlapping factual incidences and some accused at the international level and trials happening domestically, this is going to be an ongoing reality. And it's a reality that the ICTR had to face. Although the trial chambers have been generally skeptical of this defense, none of, these case, none of the cases admitted a full set of Gachacha documents. And a full set of Gachacha documents was never requested by the trial chamber. Only one ICTR case arguably makes the most effective use of the Gachacha records. And it's also the first and the last case to have an expert witness give testimony on how Gachacha operated. In the Satako decision, in finding that the prosecution had not established beyond a reasonable doubt that Rachel Makarutuma was killed by Satako on the 8th of April 1994, the chamber referred to a number of Gachacha documents which recorded the victim, that the victim had been killed in a different commune in what was then the prefecture of Giseni. As has been clearly shown in what came out very strongly from the empirical work I did inside of Gachacha, the determination and the naming of individuals and the location of their bodies constitutes one of the principal focuses of the courts and an area where effective collaboration 
would have been invaluable and was generally underexplored. However, so how the ICTR judges and lawyers had interpreted their own actions helps to explain the international court's general skepticism of the Gachacha processes, but also allows us to understand when we look at the judgments some of their failures in the effective deployment of evidence that had been given in the Gachacha courts that was then introduced into the international trials. However, the ICTR was not alone in this. And a similar trend emerged within the other two <coughs> Rwandan post-genocide courts. Within Gachacha, the work of the ICTR and the national <coughs> courts was understood in a way that was consistent with what the local courts themselves purported to have achieved. Those inside Gachacha arguing that they were making a contribution to truth and and a localized understanding of the genocide, criticized the ICTR and the national courts for their failures to contribute to local understandings of why neighbors killed neighbors. Now, the skepticism inside of Gachacha of both the ICTR and the national courts, I think, helps to explain the local courts' efforts to insulate themselves from the international proceedings. Now, this has had particular implications in a recent UK extradition decision that has refused the extradition of four men suspected of involvement in the Rwandan genocide. An analysis of the High Court decision shows some of what Tebner terms the distorted communications evident in a plural context. During the course of the proceedings, it was brought to the attention um, of the court that two of the suspects had in fact been tried in abstentia by the Gachacha courts. The judges felt that given their broader findings, that witnesses would be unwilling to testify in defense and their concerns around the independence and impartiality of the national courts, <coughs> that they didn't need to deal with these Gachacha cases in much detail. Lord Laws and Sullivan simply noted it's not clear whether this surprising turn of events was simply a case of the left hand not knowing what the right was doing or something more sinister. An analysis, however, of the follow-up interviews conducted by the Rwandan National Prosecuting Authority with the Gachacha judges involved in these decisions challenges both of these readings, showing that the localized courts were well aware of what they were trying to do and they were actively chose to pursue what they understood to be a principled position. Ugira Bashua's case is of particular interest, as he had been acquitted of all charges by a Gachacha court in the Ruhango sector in the southern province. Now, the composition of this court was, in many ways, typical of the structure of the, Gachacha, of the 11,000 Gachacha courts that have operated across the country. The bench was made up of three men and three women between the ages of 30 to 48, all of whom were subsistence farmers with basic primary school education. As a Category 1 suspect in 2008, Ugira Boshua's case had been transferred from the national courts to be tried by Gachacha. When interviewed, all of the Gachacha judges affirmed that they were aware that Ugira Boshua um, had been arrested in the UK and they actively defended the robust nature of the Gachacha proceedings. These, 
this was very much in line with some of my broader empirical findings that um, and that and as one of the judges specifically articulated in these interviews the defense for the localized adjudication of these cases. In addition, all of the judges affirmed what the, the, the role that Gachacho played in determining the individual involvement in the genocide. Now what's interesting is these statements were made by the Gachacho judges to the Rwandan National Prosecuting Authorities and offer a clear and assertive defense of the Gachacho proceedings. It was certainly not in the Rwandan government's interests for these local courts to proceed with these trials. It's not a case of the left hand not knowing what the right was doing. It's a case of the right hand asserting its values and actively prioritizing its own activities. And it's a site of direct conflict. Addressing the relationship between courts adjudicating on individual involvement in the genocide remains a very live issue. In May this year, Charles Bondora was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment by Kigali High Court following his extradition to, from Norway in, May, in March 2013, while at the same time Jean Un Kindi, who was the first individual to be um, successfully transferred from the ICTR to the Rwandan National Courts, has requested an annulment of this decision. And, he, um, and for his case to be returned to what is now the residual mechanism for international criminal, tri tri for international criminal tribunals. A decision, and a decision on this request is expected in the next month. <clears throat> so this is, not some, this is not an issue that's going to go away. And as Lawrence Rosen suggests, it may be that in law that the contest between the sense of the local and the global will receive some of its most serious testing. He goes on to posit that it's still an open question whether international law will simply be a law of the powerful or whether local practice working around the edges of the formal law will be of greater import, rightly suggesting that the relationship between the two should be understood as reciprocal despite the incommensurate array of powers. In Rwanda, Rosen's reciprocal relationship between the local and the global is realized through direct contestation between the courts. However, interaction between the lawyers, judges, and laypersons inside of the concurrent transitional justice in institutions may offer the best means of mitigating against such competition. These sites of conflict are better understood and more effectively responded to if, through a pluralist gaze, those involved might take seriously the possibility that domestic courts may offer very different justifications for the use of transitional justice than those articulated at the international level. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki, and thanks for a very, very rewarding and absorbing book, um, which I heartily recommend that everybody should read. Um, this is really not so much a response as, as I think, an addendum, um, but, but yet one that you may or may not agree with. Okay. Um, problem with writing a book is that people make what they will of it. <laughs> I, I mean, where, where, where I'm coming from is, uh, as an Africanist, um, and as somebody primarily interested in the history of executive power in, in African states, um, and, and for me, 
in the recesses of this book is an incredibly powerful argument about that, about although this is a book primarily about judicial structures, I think there's an extraordinarily interesting argument here in, in the recess of this book about executive power. Um, and there's a, there's a mover, a very important mover, sort of lurking between the lines of this book, and, and, and that is Paul Kagame, um, or, or the Rwandan executive, which was so personally controlled <coughs> by Paul Kagame from 1994. Because everything that happens in this book is, is a response to something very audacious that he did, which was to incarcerate over 100,000 people in the wake of the genocide. Uh, and I want to pause and, and, and just appreciate how audacious that was, how this was a politician really working at the very edges of the possible. Um, it, it was an enormously risky thing to do. He incarcerated these people knowing that he didn't have the institutional capacity to process them. Um, and, and thus was, was really moving into a, a future of great uncertainty and one that, that nobody in their right mind could think that they could control. Um, not incarcerating those people also carried enormous risks, but that was the nature of the situation. It was an emergency. There, there was nothing an executive could do in the mid-1990s that wasn't extremely risky and uncertain. And, and that was, I think that's the scenario that created this context. Um, and I think that the three narrowings, the three parallel respective narrowings that you talk about are, are all should be rightly understood as responses to Kagame's audacity as responses to the fact that more than 100,000 people were in prison and it wasn't clear what to do with them. And I think that's what makes all the three of these responses intelligible. And to go through them one by one, you know, the International Court washed its hands of all domestic issues, knowing very well that there simply wasn't domestic institutional capacity to deal with the situation that the deputy president had created, um, and, and therefore narrowed its, its, its remit considerably as, as an act of self-defense as an attempt to climb out of a very difficult situation. And similarly, the national courts narrowed also in response to Kagame's audacity because they were essentially trying to save their own institution, which was really seriously threatening to collapse under what Kagame had done. Um, and their, their single-minded bent for legal reform and for legal education was, was, I think, a desperate attempt to save the institution completely. And as for the Gachacha, they were also responding to this audacity because they were responding to the potential catastrophe of tens of thousands of people coming out of prison and back into communities and wondering what on earth to do about this. Um, and, and they're narrowing about truth and dialogical interactions between people at local level. Again, is is response to the first mover, which was what the executive did. Um, so... I mean, it seems to me what, what's happening in this book um, is, is a demonstration of an extremely subtle and sophisticated exercise of power, and, and one that really goes against Engelé. Um, you know, what's happening here is, is so much more interesting and sophisticated than a direct exercise of coercive power. Because really what Kagame is doing, I think, is, is understanding that in these circumstances, wielding power is the art of anticipating what others are going to do. And, and, and in each of those cases, these others are genuinely aut autonomous institutions. They are not institutions that he controls. Mm. Um, and he cannot know for certain what they will do. Uh, but certainly he's trying to anticipate it. And in the end, broadly, he wins, despite the fact that all these institutions are autonomous and in conflict with one another and are devising their own ends. You know, in, over the long scheme, over a generation, what's happened is he 
he committed this act of enormous audacity, he did arrest 100,000 people, and he kept power. Um, and, and I think that that is a, a crucial component of the story. And I mean, if one puts this in the history of, of the exercise of power in Africa, in the history of African statecraft, I think that it, it speaks very interestingly to this history. So I mean, what, I mean, what have scholars said about African statecraft over the years? Well, one huge figure is Jean-Francois Bayard, who speaks about extroversion, who speaks about the weak using the strength of the powerful to their own purposes. And I guess there's a little bit of that here. You know, there's, there's the Rwandan executive using international law for its own purposes in quite clever and crafty ways. But, but I don't think that that's the crux of the issue. I don't think what we have here is paradigmatic extroversion. Um, I mean, another influential writer is, is Jeffrey Herbst, who's argued that, that all African states, from pre-colonial through colonial to post-colonial, have struggled to broadcast power. Um, and, and that's because they're relying almost exclusively on raw coercive power, um, and their reach is only as far as the reach of their coercive institutions. And it seems here that what's happening is, is very different, um, and, and much more subtle, and much more absorbing. And, and it's a form of power, a form of exercise of power that I don't think has been properly theorized by African scholarship. Um, and it happens in a very important context. You know, Kagame is one, well, Rwanda is one of several broadly similar situations where a regime has come to power militarily. It's organized around a very charismatic figure. Um, it seems to have enormous technocratic capacity. Um, and it grows very quickly. And, and this is new. And a big question is, how real is it? How durable is it? How much can it last? And, and I think one of the questions in your book, well, I think that your book speaks to this in, in, in ways that few books have that are, that are very interesting. I think that there's a, ironically, indirectly, through a study of judicial institutions, I think that you've shown an executive institution at work in, in very, very new ways. Um, and you've done so with care and a level of detail which is unusual. So from my perspective, which maybe in this forum is a little mm -hmm. eccentric, um, this is an enormously, enormously valuable piece of work. Mm -hmm. And if it is a little eccentric, I think it's because, I mean, a work of this sort of richness does spin out in many different directions, and, and it has many audiences, and, and people use it in different ways. Mm -hmm. so, so here is one way. So yeah, that by way of a response. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.